Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city, sit on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, 
Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Morning, everyone. My name is Matt Fuller. If uh, we've not met, let me pray before we look at this very encouraging story together. Our great God and Father, thank you so very much for your work in the life of this man, Saul. He is such an encouragement to us that you could take one such as him and make him into the Apostle Paul who took the gospel uh, across uh, the known world in his time. What an encouragement to us. So please, as we turn to your word, would it do its work amongst us? Would we be encouraged? that we can trust Jesus as he grows his kingdom. We pray in his name. Amen. There is, I think, somewhat of a, a, a particular joy or delight um, when someone who has been very hostile to the Christian faith becomes a Christian. Uh, that sort of turnaround is, is always, I think, especially delightful, joyful. Uh, an opponent becomes, in some sense, a proponent, uh, a preacher of the Christian faith. So uh, certainly when I was uh, first moved to London in my 20s, uh, I'd go home on the tube each night and open the evening standard. God, I had to pay for it in those days, girl. Uh, but uh, open the evening standard. And um, a regular columnist every Thursday was A.N. Wilson, and he was venomous. Uh, a, a well-known writer, author, but he had a column every week uh, in the Evening Standard. And he probably was, in the UK, the pre-Richard Dawkins, the most famous, well-known atheist of his day. He wrote quite an inventional book saying that um, St. Paul invented Christianity, not Jesus. I'm not even sure there was a Jesus. And uh, he wrote books, Why Religion is Terrible for the World. And every Thursday there he was with quite a wide, loud megaphone. You know, all the, all the commuters would read him. And I would always read this, oh, he's having a go at Christianity again. Such a venomous man. And then in 2009, he said, yeah, I've become a Christian. What? Uh, no, no, someone's just, are there articles all over the place? Yeah, no, no, I, I, I've become a Christian. Extraordinary. Um, he wrote books then subsequently on how Christians should read the Bible. I mean, he really did, not just in a sort of half-hearted way, a complete 180, volt-fast turnaround. Oh, yeah, I, I was so foolish. I was just in my little, my little bubble with my atheist friends, and we only spoke to one another. And then I looked up and thought, actually, this isn't true, is it? Christianity is true. It's very encouraging when that sort of thing happens. And of course, in the 20th century, some of the most prominent defenders of the Christian faith were those who had once upon a time been passionately atheists. So C.S. Lewis writes of his growing up with a firm belief in the inexistence of God. No such thing. Uh, Alistair McGrath, who founded the Oxford Center for Apologetics, uh, ran one of the evangelical colleges in the UK, talks of him growing up until his 20s, writing in his 20s that God was an infantile illusion suitable for the elderly, the intellectually feeble, and the fraudulently religious and has now written more than a dozen books on apologetics defending the Christian faith. It's very encouraging. There's real joy in seeing such sort of passionate opponents of Christianity discovering, oh no, he's wonderful. Jesus is wonderful. 
Um, let me tell everyone about that. It's a particular encouragement. I mean, never more so in the whole of history, of course, than Acts chapter 9. There's a sense in which God never does a more godlike thing in taking this murderer of Christians and turning him into his foremost evangelist. It's a wonderful act of his grace. So as we read chapter 9, I think the point is this. You don't despair at opposition. Jesus grows his church through even most unlikely of people. Don't despair. Don't despair at an opponent. God can make him a preacher. Never despair. If you're joining us just today, we work our way through the book of Acts. And really the whole point of the book is that Jesus Christ is growing his kingdom and it's unstoppable. It'll always be through opposition. It'll always be through pain, through hardship. But that is what is happening as the gospel goes to the end of the earth. And we're in this section. Um, Luke divides it up with all these little summary statements. Um, we're in a section from chapter 6, verse 8 to chapter 9, verse 31. So we get the summary statement uh, at the end of our reading today. The church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So this section 6, 8 to 9, 31, is, it's Christianity emerging really out of Judaism. We don't need the temple. We don't need Jerusalem because the gospel spreads wherever Christians are to the ends of the earth. And here at the end of this section, the apostle to the world is appointed. Uh, and the next section we'll get to, uh, it really is about the, the, the non-Jewish world really hearing about the Christian faith. Let me remind ourselves that we've, we've met Saul before. So if you turn back one page, chapter 8, uh, he was there supervising, approving of the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Do you remember this? Chapter 8, verse 1. Saul approved of their killing of Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. It's an unusual word that gets used here for destroy, not the normal word that Greek uses. Saul began to destroy the church as a sense of constant harassing, ravaging. It's a word used of rape elsewhere. He's brutally attacking the church. So you read chapter 8, verse 3, and you're thinking in your mind something like the miserable scene in Schindler's List where the Warsaw ghetto is emptied out. Uh, and the soldiers are pulling people out of their houses, lining them up in the streets, shooting if there's any dissent. That's how the early church is being treated by Saul and his stormtroopers. And so we read in the beginning of our reading again, chapter 9, verse 1, just in case you've forgotten, says Luke. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. As naturally as we're sat here breathing in and visibly breathing out, Saul was breathing out murderous threats. It's just that's who he was, instinctive to him. And so in chapter 9, verse 1, having arrested as many people as he can find in Jerusalem, he, Saul, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belongs to the way, whether men or women, he may take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. 
He's a man obsessed. I've done everything I can. I've arrested everyone I can in Jerusalem. Let me go to Damascus, get them all there, because we've got to nail this now. This must end. He's obsessed with shutting down this early church. Of course, there have been people like that in history. Makes me think perhaps of uh, Edmund Bonner, 16th century. He was the Bishop of London under Mary. And was known as just Bloody Bonner because he was the bishop responsible for killing more of the English reformers than anyone else. Would burn them at the stake at Jaring Cross. Obsessed with shutting down that early movement. That's Saul. Now, for you and me in the 21st century, that's not what the Christian faith looks like, and none of us experience that. Our people are hostile, obsessively so, but of course it's far less bloody. But the point for you, I mean, we're meant to read this and think, you do realize, don't you, quite how terrified the church would be This man Saul is coming to Damascus. He's pulled people from their houses, from their beds in Jerusalem. You know, you're living in fear of discovery. Every time there's a rattle on the door, every time people sound of footsteps in your street, you're thinking, is this, is this troops? Is this Saul and his stormtroopers come to take us away? The church is petrified of this man. And of course, the early church would have been thinking, Jesus, where are you? Your kingdom meant to be unstoppable. Where are you? Sam, I'll go from the... Uh... Don't despair at the opposition. Jesus grows his church through these unlikely people. So four ways, four ways really of looking at this. Uh, they're making the same point. This transformation, this radical transformation, four ways uh, of looking at it. It's the same truth, but uh, from slightly different angles. So look, we'll look at this. That the, um, If I can put it in this way, the persecuted Jesus takes control, verses 1 to 19. We'll go on a tangent and look at the obscure Ananias who became central. Then back to Saul. The hunter became the hunted, 20 to 25. And in the end, fear becomes peace, 26 to 31. Okay. Don't despair at an opponent. God can make him a preacher. Don't despair. First, then, here's the main point, I guess. The, the, the persecuted Jesus takes control but takes in inverted commas because he's always in control. But let's read the story then. Uh, let's pick it up from verse 3. As Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now, of course, quite apart from the lights the light that flashes around him, we're told that Saul here, he sees Jesus, verse 27, and uh, the other two times when uh, Paul, as he becomes, relates this account. He says, I saw Jesus. But of course, it is, as, as Pete mentioned earlier, the first comment that Jesus makes that's striking. Verse 5, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
Why do you persecute me? Verse 4, why do you persecute me? Which is a great encouragement. It must be to Christians throughout the world, throughout history, when suffering. Jesus says, I'm there with you. He so identifies with your people. I'm there with you. No doubt Christians in places around the world ask, Jesus, where are you? His response is, I I am with you. I suffer with you. Jesus identifies with the persecution, and yet he has authority over over the murderer here. Look how many times he's referred to as the Lord. So uh, uh, Saul's opening comment, verse 5, Who are you, Lord? Uh, Verse 10, the Lord calls out uh, to Ananias. Uh, Verse 11, the Lord speaks to him. He's acknowledged, verse 13, by Ananias' Lord. Uh, Verse 15, the Lord said to Ananias. So Jesus is in control of all these things. It looks like he can say, look, I'm being persecuted. But it's not as if Jesus is sort of exhausted. He's flat out on the canvas. And in a slight Hollywood moment, he sort of manages to rouse himself up despite being beaten. And then all of a sudden, he regains his strength. He has some spinach or whatever it is and regains some strength and turns the tables. He's always in control. But he allows himself to be persecuted even though, dare we use such language, it pains him deeply. He's always in control. And so here in verse 6, he tells Saul, look, here's what's going to happen. Verse 6, get up and go into the city. You'll be told what you must do. And verse 7, this murderous man who the Christians were terrified of is reduced Well, he's completely enfeebled. Verse 7, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. No doubt the normal biblical metaphor, you're spiritually blind, so you're physically blinded. For three days he was blind. He didn't eat or drink anything. But of course, the dramatic change comes. He meets Ananias, verse 13. Ananias says, I've heard many reports about this man, all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But Jesus says, 15, the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Radical change. The persecutor, this evil man, becomes the chosen instrument. Jesus takes his greatest opponent and turns him into his finest missionary. So don't despair. The persecuted Jesus, he takes control. He's always in control, despite what's happening. Let's briefly look at Ananias, because I think he's an interesting little character in the story. Uh, Briefly, uh, the obscure Ananias becomes central. In, uh, in the middle of this plot. You can imagine this sort of scene. Ananias is a Christian in Damascus, but he's heard of Saul because everyone's heard of Saul. And so Jesus appears to him. Verse 10, the Lord called to Ananias in a vision. Yes, Lord, he answered him. The Lord said, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And Ananias says, you what? Sorry, Lord, just run this by me. The the, the persecutor, 
the one we've been dreading, who's on his way with a task force to round up all the Christians. He's in the city, and you've told him my name. And you've told him a Christian is going to knock on your door. Thanks, is sort of what he says. Verse 13, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. <laughs> but the Lord says to Ananias, go. Go. And wonderfully, verse 17, he does. And he obviously believes Jesus' words, because look how he greets Saul. Ananias went to the house, verse 17, entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Brother Saul, it's quite a strong greeting for a man you're expecting to kill you, but he clearly trusts Jesus. But this is the only mention we get in the whole Bible of Ananias, apart from when uh, Paul repeats uh, his conversion story. What else does Ananias do in his life? We don't know. We know nothing about him apart from this. And you really think, why do you do it this way, Lord? I mean, to bring Saul to his knees, Jesus appears to him somewhat dramatically in lights. Everyone else is looking on going, whoa, this is crazy, say all the soldiers with Paul. What's going on? They don't know. But Jesus appears to Saul to bring him to his knees. But to commission him to restore his sight, to give him the Holy Spirit. So the moment when Saul is born again, Ananias does it. A bloke we've never heard of and is pretty unimportant and we never hear of again. It's just a bit odd to do it that way. Why does he do it that way? I don't know. We're not told, but I find it quite encouraging. God uses obscure, unimportant Ananias to commission the most significant Christian in history, you'd probably say, the greatest missionary, the apostle to the Gentiles. And so I wonder if for you and me, Maybe we'll never transform the world, but maybe we can be a little bit like Ananias if we're, Ananias if we're Christians. Somewhat nervously obeying Jesus. Well, I don't want to go and speak to anyone. I certainly don't want to go to him and tell him about you. I certainly don't want to go and uh, ask him if he wants to read John's gospel with me. But who knows? Have you heard of Mordecai Ham? You probably would remember his name. It's an unusual one. Have you heard of him? I'd never heard of him until last week. I read he was the man who preached when Billy Graham became a Christian. Ah. Heard of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never heard of Mordecai Ham. Stephen Ryland, never heard of him. I'd never heard of him. He was the man who baptized William Carey. Great missionary to India, took the gospel there. Heard of Ananias? We have today. Doesn't do anything else. But he does see this one individual become a Christian. It's not the main point of the passage. It's a tangent, really. But obscure you and me can be used significantly in God's plan when we obey Jesus and speak of him. The obscure Ananias became central. 
Let's get back to the main point, though. The hunter becomes the hunted. Back to Saul's transformation. So third little thing, the hunter becomes the hunted. Uh, you get the hint of this in verse 16, or, the, or the, not the hint, the, the, the point is made in verse 16, then we see it actually taking place, 20 to 25. So verse 16, the, the commission goes. So uh, Ananias says to Saul, okay, this is who you're going to be. And, uh, but Jesus says, look, one thing Saul needs to know from the off, verse 16, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. And as soon as Saul gets his sight back, as soon as he's commissioned, that's exactly what happens, verse 20 downwards. Look at the transformation in this man, though, verse 20. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, no messing about, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet, Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Extraordinary. And so after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill, and Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. I mean, it's got to be pretty galling for, for the synagogue in Damascus. You know, they write it, they've written their letters to Jerusalem, dear high priest. We've got some of those irritating followers of Jesus, the followers of the way. They're, they're, they've, they've set up their cult in Damascus. Um, brilliant. Saul's coming. Saul the hammer. Saul the, the, the destroyer is coming to get the Christians. Brilliant. Saul arrives. Oh, so have you seen Saul? He's, he's in the middle of town. Brilliant. What's he doing? He's preaching about Jesus. Oh. Well, let's go and shut him up. Well, they can't, verse 22. They, he confounds them all. He was a real zealot for the Old Testament, which is kind of annoying now he's become a Christian because he keeps proving that Jesus was predicted in the Old Testament. How galling for the Jews, the synagogue of Damascus. And again, you see that in history. Look, I've Obviously, I never, was never privy to conversations in the Hitchens household growing up. Christopher Hitchens, uh, I guess, in the last decade or so, one of the most obvious, voluble, uh, forceful, aggressive, I mean, very able man, but critics of, of Christianity. Of course, he and his brother grew up in a fiercely atheistic household. So his brother, Peter, is notorious also for uh, a boarding school in the middle of chapel, burning his Bible uh, as a demonstration how ridiculous the Christian faith was, showing his public contempt for Christianity by burning a Bible in chapel. Uh, don't do that at boarding school. Um, but then, of course, in his 20s, Peter Hitchens, convicted of his sin, trusts in Jesus as his saviour, and has spent most of his adult life gently, more gently than his brother, but politely defending the Christian faith. How galling must that have been for Christopher as he wrote increasingly angry critiques of the Christian faith and his brother who'd burned a Bible in his childhood wrote against him saying, no, my brother Christopher's got it all wrong. I imagine that's quite galling when the attacker of the Christian faith becomes its defender. And Paul is preaching now, Jesus is the son of God. Proving from the Old Testament, Jesus is the Messiah. 
Jesus takes the murder of Christians to become its greatest evangelist. The hunter becomes the hunted. And obviously that's how the plot develops in the book of Acts. And so really overall what happens is that fear becomes peace. Verses 26 to 31. Uh, Saul makes it to Jerusalem and fear becomes peace. Uh, For those who know the book of Galatians, you know, it's probably, possibly between verse 25 and verse 26, Paul goes to Arabia for three years. We know it's three years after his conversion that actually he gets to Jerusalem. But what happens when he gets to Jerusalem three years after the events of the Damascus Road? Verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Well, you get that. They'd seen him rounding up their friends. They'd seen him overseeing the death of Stephen, their friend. It's not really that surprising they're scared. They're all afraid of him. Verse 27, Barnabas, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul and his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him, how in Damascus he'd preached fearlessly in the name of the Lord. And so, verse 28, Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Verse 29 is a really lovely detail. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, that is the Jews from a Greek background. The last person in the book of Acts who'd been preaching to the Greek background Jews, the Hellenistic Jews. Stephen, that Saul had seen martyred. So the man that Saul had seen the execution of, Stephen, he now takes his place. It's lovely. It's a lovely detail. Verse 29. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. But the believers learned of this. They took him down to Caesarea, sent him off to Tarsus. So another death threat. And for forward-looking for the plot of Acts, Jerusalem is now finished. Because you've now got the apostle to the, Jew, to the Gentiles, and Jerusalem is no longer going to be the center of the Christian world. It's going to go to Tarsus and Antioch, and all the planting is going to go from there. So Luke is saying Jerusalem is finished. And here's the conclusion of this section. The church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increased in numbers. Let me draw it all together. To make me two comments, a general and a personal. The general one would be this. Jesus is growing his church. And look at the difference from verse 1 in our passage today, to say verse 28. Verse 1, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Verse 28, Saul stayed with them, the disciples, and moved about freely, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Here's the main general point. Don't despair at opposition. Jesus grows his church through the most unlikely of people. Don't fear opponents. God can make them preachers of his word. Don't despair. I mean, and sometimes you can just get very demoralized. I heard this week, um, just some, a couple of years ago, one of our invitation dinners, we had a man come and speak, Phil Chadder. 
some will remember, he was the chaplain at the time in Brixton Prison and spoke about life, uh, ministering to uh, in that setting and how uh, he ran sort of courses, uh, alpha courses, so people were learning all about the Christian faith. Um, uh, well, he moved to another job two years ago, and I heard this week that the, the chaplain that replaced him was an imam, um, so completely different, and has now banned any Christian courses in the prison. And you hear that and you think, oh, really? Because the, the message, he, he declared that the, the alpha courses they were using there was too radical, almost radicalizing prisoners. It was a disgrace. Really? How discouraging. But don't despair, Acts 9 would say. You pray. Pray, and who knows that the opponent, God can take an opponent of his word and make him a preacher. So pray. So I read this, I was encouraged to pray. For those who do have high profiles, I, I know he would just be spitting to hear it. But you pray for Richard Dawkins, don't you? I do. I mean, he would hate to know that. I mean, I think he just drives him nuts when Christians say they pray for him. But of course we do. What a wonderful trophy of God's grace he'd be. But don't despair, pray. God takes opponents of his words and makes them his preachers. That's the general point. But to push it more personally, it is extraordinary. Jesus chooses Saul. Who, of course, renames himself Paul. But right in 1 Timothy chapter 1, how extraordinary that God would use me, the worst of sinners. How extraordinary, and yet how very godlike it is to take the worst of sinners and raise him up as the greatest of the apostles to the non Christian to the non Jewish world, the Gentile world. How extraordinary. And of course, he didn't God didn't have to do it this way. He could have plucked Paul, Saul, before he became a persecutor. You know, Saul could have been converted on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, along with thousands of others, and gone to be the, the, uh, the, um, the evangelist, the apostle to the Gentiles. God could have done it that way, but he didn't do it that way. Why wait until Saul had become a murderer, a persecutor of the church? Well, it was so God could demonstrate his grace. Even the worst can become a Christian could become a evangelist, a preacher, an apostle. And so, of course, if God saved Saul, he can save anyone. So don't assume that anyone is beyond God's forgiveness. Certainly for yourself, don't assume that you could be beyond God's forgiveness. Please, if you're sat here this morning and think, I've done something and God can't forgive me for it, do come and tell me afterwards how you think you're worse than Saul, who murdered Christians. Let me, I think this must be for the last time. I think we must be finished by now. But let me, for the last time, I meant to pick it up again. Um, the Acts of the Tree. If you haven't read it by now, golly, you really must. But of course, if you, if you get all the way through, you know, towards the end, the man who dominates the narrative in the last couple of chapters is a man called Gerekai. 
So the axe and the tree, I mean, this story the, in the 60s and 70s, uh, a couple, how they set up a church and a school in a rural Rhodesia, uh, now Zimbabwe, and how it flourished, and many people became Christians. But in 1978, ZANU-PF forces uh, killed the nine white missionaries that were there. There was a large staff by that time, but all the whites they killed to try and stir up great racial tension uh, in 1978. Uh, of course, this all happens. In the last couple of chapters or so, the man who dominates the narrative is Garikai, who was the leader of the murderers who led the force that invaded the hospital and school in the night in July 1978. And he, you read how he, one day, post-War of Independence, Zimbabwe established, but still uh, leading a militia force for ZANU-PF, he reads in a newspaper an advertisement paid for by Christians, but it's the testimony of another uh, terrorist who'd become a Christian. And he read this and he was furious. And then he read it again and said, That's, I, I need this forgiveness and, and wrote off to the address that was there. He wrote, I saw your advertisement in the paper. Please, someone help me. I'm a nowhere man living in nowhere land. I make up nowhere plans. I feel so guilty for all I've done, but my hand is too short to reach out and touch your Lord. He wouldn't want me. A woman called Margaret sent him a letter back saying, no, no, you could become a Christian. Sent him John's gospel. And he read it and reread this several times. And then one night, he had a vision of Jesus actually appearing to him and saying, no, you can be forgiven. Uh, and so he put his faith in Jesus Christ. He became a missionary. Excuse me, he became a passionate evangelist in the country, having trained at Bible college for several years. The striking thing about it, or what, there are many amazing things about it, but one is the night that he and others invaded this school and hospital complex and they killed nine white missionaries, he recounts that he'd be in contact with others to try and share the gospel, who'd been part of his militia force. And to his knowledge, himself and eight others of the murderers had become Christians. Nine of them. Nine Zimbabwean believers preaching the gospel to their countrymen, replacing, in some sense, the nine missionaries they'd killed. It's an extraordinary story. Don't despair. So you don't despair personally that you're too bad for the Lord. His forgiveness is extraordinary. Even Saul, the worst of sinners, he raises up, he forgives and has him as an apostle. Uh, and more broadly in culture, don't despair in opposition to the Christian faith. God can take opponents and make them preachers. Because the kingdom of Jesus is unstoppable. There is always grace. What an extraordinary turnaround this was. Let's pray together. The great God and Father, how extraordinary that you should choose Saul to be your apostle to the non-Jewish world, to the Gentiles like the majority of us here. 
How extraordinary you would, you would choose the worst of sinners for the greatest of tasks. And yet, uh, for those of us who know the Lord Jesus, that, that is just typical as it's a demonstration of your grace. So, Father, in the face of uh, our own sinfulness, would we not despair? You had mercy on a wretch like Saul. You can certainly have mercy on us. And in the face of opposition, would we not despair? Because you can turn around the, the worst of opponents and make them the greatest of preachers. And so would we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.